You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. We have a returning guest this episode, Kevin Munger, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Social Data Analytics at Penn State University, who previously joined us to speak about his book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Kevin is also an active contributor to the New Models Discord and recently sparked a discussion after sharing his essay, Why I Am Still a Conservative for Now, a follow-up to his previous essay, Why I Am Still a Liberal for Now, both of which reflect upon the meaning of these categories in our time of social media-dominated political discourse. If you haven't heard our first episode with Kevin titled Boomer Ballast, we highly recommend it. But we had somehow overlooked just how prolific Kevin is, frequently writing on his substack, Never Met a Science, and blog, Crooked Timber, as well as founding the Journal of Quantitative Description, Digital Media, and regularly publishing research papers that very much fit into the new model's sphere of interest. If you believe academia is in a state of atrophy, Kevin proves the contrary, and this conversation offers an orientation of sorts to the broader framework of his thinking. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest, once again, is Kevin Munger. Let's get into it. Kevin Munger, back on the pod. How are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be here. Excellent. So Kevin Munger is a repeat guest of New Models. He was last on this past summer to talk about his recent book, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture, published by Columbia University Press. Kevin is an assistant professor of political science and social data analysis at Penn State University. We ran into Kevin. It was a nice surprise when we yeah. in New York over the holidays. Somehow we also overlooked that Kevin publishes a lot of brilliant writing. Right. Like you don't actually have to wait for a Columbia University title to come out to access Kevin's brain. He actually has an amazing substack and is regularly publishing and, these yes. gems. And thus, our in the, <laughs> and thus the introduction we'd like to ask you, Kevin, you joined us on your book publicity tour, but we want an introduction outside of selling books. Absolutely. Thanks, y'all. Excited to talk about this stuff that really occupies a lot of my mind. So any uh, additional interlocutors are always welcome. So I started grad school expecting to do a very normal thing. I went to NYU to get my PhD in politics. And it happened that they have an emerging center to study social media and politics. Uh, I'm a longtime social media enthusiast. I was one of those using Twitter when you had to text 40404, and we were just using it to like meet up with people at parties in college. So I've gone back and deleted the early part of my Twitter. <laughs> but as I was studying social media during grad school more, I really picked up on another trend in social science, which is running field experiments. I really like field experiments. I think they allow for a lot of creativity. In some sense, I think that the way that they actually operate is as performance art, that by actually taking actions in the world, we move past what Dewey calls the spectator theory of knowledge and actually intervening to see what happens. But I encountered a contradiction when I was running 
field experiments using Twitter bots to reduce racist harassment. These initial experiments went quite well. They were well received. I used Twitter bots to send messages to guys being racist online to see how norm enforcement works in these somewhat anonymous channels. And the problem is that grad students read the paper and they tried to replicate it, right? And so replication is usually considered the cornerstone of science. People sometimes provide it as the definition of science. But in this case, it didn't replicate. And this is not in the sense of the replication crisis, which y'all might have heard of, but rather that when the students tried to take the same actions that I took, it was impossible. So Twitter had changed their enforcement so that they were much better at catching bots. And thus, it was literally impossible to replicate my experiment. And this basically blackpilled me on the possibility of social science of the internet and caused me to read much more broadly. And this took me into media ecology, cybernetics. And so using this broader framework, and I'm really inspired by McLuhan's adage that we can't be using yesterday's concepts for today's problems. As I'm trying to think more broadly about how the internet affects democracy and, and our philosophy, I'm trying to re-foundationalize or see what can be preserved from a lot of these major frameworks that had informed the era of liberal literary democracy. That tracks and also adds more dimension to your interest in studying the generation gap. It's not just a historically specific moment for one age cohort and another historically specific moment for another. It's actually like a media ecology that each one inhabits and how one is displacing, or maybe we can get into this later, but colonizing the other, how a new media forum ends up having almost like a colonialist effect. Since we asked you to come on in response to these twin essays, why I am still a conservative for now and why I'm still a liberal for now. Could you just give us your definitions of conservative and liberal? And I, I have to imagine that anyone under the age of 50 describing themselves as a conservative is probably intending to provoke. But your reason is that the only way to be a liberal in 2023 is to be a conservative. So great line. Can you unpack what you mean by it? Yeah. So... Liberalism, broadly construed, is the political philosophy that undergirds Western governments for the past few centuries. It's based on largely individual freedom, generally paired with liberal democracy. So there are these institutions that we use to solve the problem of how do we collectively make decisions while still respecting individual freedom, so tied to these ideas of human rights. But I think that the liberal tradition is also historically contingent on the media technology. So they talk about liberal reason as the ideal of the Enlightenment. Reason, the capacity of humans to use rational thought to improve their world, is the mechanism by which liberalism functions. And for reason to function, you need to have time. You need to have access to information. You need to be able to spend time in contemplation. You need to be able to interact with others and so the modern versions focus on this idea of deliberation. Deliberation is important because it allows people to express themselves, to feel more committed to the process, and to make information revealed, and thus aggregate the information in an efficient way such that we have everyone contributing to collective governance. Conservatism has a couple of different conceptions, but I think that today no one can really look at the communication environment that we have and say that this is conducive to deliberation or liberal reason. 
So I think that any attempt at a political response using the technology of liberalism, which is the water in which we all swim, in particular the elder statesmen, they fail to understand just how dramatically the media ecological landscape has shifted during their lifetime. What I mean by you need to be a conservative in order to be a liberal is that the current rate of change of technology is incompatible with deliberation, and I would even say um, human dignity. There's a lot to unpack there, and I want to come back to this idea of liberalism and conservatism. But another set of terms that I'd love to throw out early on, and something that Julian and I keep thinking about, is the difference between the notion of progress and the notion of a progressive. Progress, in one sense, it's a word that's as wishy-washy as freedom, right? It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But typically, the idea of progress in America, I think, is associated with financial dominance. Whereas progressivism usually relates to some kind of social tolerance. And I wondered if you could speak a bit about why there's such a divergence in these two terms or what comes to mind for you when you use the word progress versus when you use the word progressivism. So I think progressivism, you're right that in the current usage, it refers to liberal social policies. But in the origin of the term in the United States is the progressive movement, which was really about top-down elite reform of the masses. So we Mm. know what's good for these people, these poor benighted souls who have no money, but also have no education. And so this is the origin of the temperance movement, the origin of eugenics, the origin of the modern education system. This is the progressive ideal that we actually do want everyone to be able to participate. But if you just look at them right now, these people can't reason. These people are not fit liberal subjects, and we should take pretty aggressive measures to make them into the kind of people who can participate in a liberal democracy. Hmm. This other point about progress in the United States being tied to economic conditions, dominance, is exactly right. And I think this ties into a larger issue that this country has, which is a lack of any other identity. So our only uniting feature is progress. Mm. Whereas other cultures that have existed for longer have some kind of origin story, have some kind of myth background, some conception of what it means to be Greek, right? (laughs) Or whatever. And why was some kind of equilibrium, some kind of sense of human thriving, why was that never part of the mythos of progress. I mean, I understand, obviously, America was built through trade and immigrants searching for a better life. And maybe we're just still close to that American dream moment. But why, as the country has matured and achieved global dominance financially, why did it never incorporate some sense of human thriving as European cultures have? So the one answer is that the frontier actually hasn't been closed, as they say. There's been places to go to, things to conquer, until our grandparents or, you know, in some cases, until our parents, right? So the, there hasn't been a settled physical layout of the country until very recently. And I guess that just means there hasn't been enough time. So technology is a big part of the story. The Edison type, Ben Franklin, the tinkerer, someone who was able to use their ingenuity to manipulate their physical environment and thereby create new technology that benefits everybody. And my favorite case comes from the anthropologist Margaret Mead, who wrote during World War II an odd novel, which was intended as part of the war effort. And she says that we need to understand the American character in order to use American soldiers and the American people correctly to defeat the Nazis. So the concern was at the time, 
you know, fascism is simply more efficient. By reducing human freedom and making us cogs in a machine, the Nazis will be able to defeat us in terms of productivity, and so we should copy their methods. Mead says, no, we have to take into account the American character, which requires this conception of fair play and the possibility that if you work hard, play by the rules, you can get ahead. But this is interpreted into things like generations and psychoanalysis. So the fact that the mother does not ask her mother for advice about child rearing, but looks to the snake oil salesman, looks to the latest mm. technological innovation because there's no respect for history. There's only respect for the future. And this seems embedded into the American character, at least insofar as you buy ethnocentrism as a useful frame, which I think it is. That's really interesting. In a country where progress is the main character narrative, one looks to progressive technologies for answers more than to some kind of sense of tradition. I think that's still true, to be honest, especially in a time when my mother's generation was all told to use formula and not breastfeed. And now there's this like reclaiming of a folk history where you're rejecting one's mother's knowledge still. Yeah, yeah but I mean, novelty always sells, right? I mean, not you always. You can't make a new market. If, but, I would, I, but I would say no. I mean, or, or maybe there's something hybrid. But I mean, if you look at like the branding in Williamsburg, if Williamsburg is still metonymic for this kind of stuff, it's all about the Williamsburg, handcrafted. Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yeah, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Sorry. Right. Right. It's all about right. the handcrafted and the hand hewn. Yeah. It has been for 20 years now. It's all right. about the wood tables and the taking the industrial space and bringing the logs from upstate to panel the walls. You know, there is this fetishizing of tradition, actually. But it's an invention, right? It's a rejection of like the 80s go-go past of your parents. Right. And simultaneously, there's an obsession with supplements, though, and these uh -huh. sorts of transhumanist augmentation and tuning of the body, right. which feels, I don't know, it's almost like the quaint, crafty economy of hipster centers feels just more of a signal than an actual example of a returning to some kind of tradition or ideal. I mean, but then there's the returning to a paleo tradition, you know, or something right. that's like deep reaching. But maybe this leads to a question, which is to get back to this idea of the rate of technological progress, like Moore's law, far exceeds the linear progress of human evolution. And I think in one of your pieces, you talk about how about a hundred years is what we imagine like a good long human yeah. life to be. You know, we've achieved that. But at the same time, technology has progressed exponentially. So it's like impossible to calibrate to the rate of change. I mean, Kevin, how do you reconcile then like how we inoculate ourselves or how we attempt to inoculate ourselves to this mind-bending rate of technological progress? There's one framework from some rationalist guy online talking about live actors and dead actors, <laughs> the kind of actors in society who are aware of the actual strategic landscape and those who are not, those who are stuck in the past. And we have to realize that a huge percentage of the people with power are simply not live actors. They don't even have the conceptual maps or the empirical maps or networks aware of what's going on. So it's frustrating and freeing. For now, it makes the likelihood of significant change that takes advantage of our knowledge of reality less likely because there's all this boomer ballast of these actors just playing the same strategies they've been playing their whole lives. But on the other hand, it means that for people who are aware that this is happening, there will be a moment of possibility. And so the question becomes, how do you and your group, your community, use the internet well? Mm. So the internet being 
kind of revolutionary technology at the level of the printing press, figuring out how to use it to your advantage and not just take what's given to us by the platform web and do what we're supposed to do within that system. If you're doing that, you are not even trying to win. You can't win. The first step is the step that y'all have let us down, which is uh, getting off the clear net and creating a space where deliberation is uh, possible online. Yeah, I'm happy to see that there are a lot of different entities that are trying to do this. But I would say that as COVID has lifted and people are now again in IRL spaces, I think we've reached some kind of maybe temporary threshold where what other digital infrastructure can there be to better facilitate communities that are larger than the thousand member discord? Like, You can run a really great Discord and it can feel really good. How do you then link up from there? How do you not just have a good strategy, how to use this technology, but how do you then build something beyond it? And that's the question that I know we're asking right now. Like, how do we rewire media beyond the dark forest? How do we find a way to inhabit other kinds of digital spaces? I mean, I keep thinking through this theory of like, Social media isn't our commons. We know it's not our commons, but it is our common infrastructure. They're different things, right? It's an infrastructure we all share, even though it's not actually our commons. It's more like, I mean, I said this on the past pod, but in interstate highway, and there are these billboards and exit signs and bumper stickers and places where we get little bits of information, and we can then choose to off-ramp into other kinds of communities. But how do you link all those communities? It really is kind of like America's suburbia, where it's just like local access routes that go on ad infinitum, and you see repeating patterns, but they don't really speak to each other. So like, how do we rewire that? Maybe that's a question that exceeds this conversation, but do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a question that exceeds this conversation. And I think it's a question that exceeds conversations in the sense that liberal reason uses the technology of speech and writing. And this is the marks that we've made to transmit this entire memeplex, whatever you want to call it. The revolutionary question is how do we actually reprogram the apparatus starting from the, and Kate is always talking about this, but starting from the material infrastructure, the actual physical servers and wires up the levels of the stack. And it's a question that requires technical innovation. Mm. And so I think one of the greatest tricks the devil ever pulled was convincing leftists that learn to code was a reactionary, you know, dismissal. In fact, that's definitely what you should do. It both makes it easier in your immediate circumstances to have some space within which to operate without being as acutely worried about rent and food. And it gives you the skills that are necessary to engage in contemporary technical deliberation, which is coding. Absolutely. I mean, maybe this is a corny analogy, but it's a little bit like when I lived in New York, I really didn't cook that much. And I also felt pretty bad in my body. And moving to Germany, Julian and I cook like basically seven nights a week. And it's like a hack to feel really good and also save money. And it's like a really simple thing. Learn to cook. I mean, obvious connection, learn to code, learn to cook. But it feels like there's a parallel in that the food system, especially like in America, feels broken. I know people are going to be annoyed that I'm like railing on America, but it feels broken and similar. Similarly, we seem to think that the only media we can have is the ones that are given to us by yeah. these like large companies when actually we can build infrastructure if we learn to code. This relates to something that I've been thinking about, and Kevin, maybe you have insights into this, but in the United States, at least since like talk radio in the 80s, 
the right wing fringe of the United States has been far more adept at adopting new technologies and wielding them with great success right. and using them in innovative ways that end up becoming extremely powerful tools for growing a cohesive mass audience. I'm just wondering if you have any ideas of why the right seems to be like a couple years ahead. So this is helpful because it lets me clarify something, which is that they're basically are not conservatives of the kind that I was talking about earlier in the Republican Party. The Republicans leaned into capitalism at the level of the adoption of new media technology and did not have this kind of left-wing hand wringing about capitalism. So the leftists did the equivalent of not learning to code by not adopting new media technology throughout the 20th century. So that's just not a good strategy. Another possible perspective is that I actually don't think liberal democracy was possible in the 1920s. And this is the Burkean perspective, right? We cannot actually do information transmission, synthesis, and then deliberation at this scale with this temporality. It's not actually possible. And so Walter Lippmann, this influential theorist of public opinion, was very pessimistic about the possibility of our electoral institutions, our schools, our, our journalists, to actually do the idealized functions of information circulation that we think democracy needs. And so if that's the case, even in the 1920s, the sort of progressive left-wing liberal groups didn't really have a chance, and the conservatives buying into this illiberal, broadcast, unifying mass communication, which doesn't actually require deliberation, it just requires listening and incorporating. It was just a better use of the technology that we had at the time. Whereas writing or deliberation in a small group does require participation and thought. Obviously, it still functions at smaller scales, but it just doesn't work at the larger levels. So I wonder if this is a moment to bring in a question of machine learning. The most interesting part of GPT-3 or any of the machine learning innovations that have become like publicly accessible in the past year is this divining the collective unconscious in a way. It's like a way of understanding what the masses want and think without people having to like go to a voting booth and actually vote. Do you see any potentials or do you even think it's within the realm of possibility that machine learning will start to be a form of media that will be able to tap what a kind of unconscious democratic body would want? I think I'm not optimistic about that. And I think uh -huh. that a lot of the machine learning that exists still has the same problems as language in the sense that we can conceive of data in a CSV. You've got rows and columns. And you just have the columns that you give the machine. And right. so this problem of concept drift is something that they talk about in machine learning all the time, where, in fact, you, you thought you had modeled the social context that is generating the data that comes in, but if something happens, if there's a pandemic, that doesn't come up in your data. Yeah. The columns that you have become different and you respond without understanding that there's been a systemic change. So at a minimum, machine learning will be a helpful tool. But for any of this to succeed in, let's say, creating human freedom, we have to think seriously about how the humans fit into the loop. This is the technical problem at the heart of what democracy has to... I think in order to save democracy, we have to abandon the idea of 
electro institutions that are 250 years old. As that's the definition of democracy. Democracy is is completely useless. But as an ideal for allowing people to live together, we need to figure out what the institutions are, the technical institutions that enable modern democracy with modern communication tools. That sounds right for sure. I think the practical way of doing it will probably require, I mean, the boomer ballast is going to be a drag on making these changes probably for the next decade. I wonder what the technological landscape will look like by the 2030s when millennials are coming into positions of political agency, you know, maybe some of these changes can be instituted. But who knows? I mean, maybe corporate power will be more trusted and more influential than the legacy political position. So maybe it will happen sooner. Who's to say? That, that seems plausible. I mean, already people trust Amazon more than either party, right? And Amazon gives <laughs> them stuff. Right. And you can return it if you don't like it. Yeah. Um, in one of your essays, you mention Richard Rorty. Mm. You write that Rorty believes that progress is made through redescription rather than logical inference. And I wanted to ask you about this project of redescription and if you think that's kind of a central task for the coming years and also what you see as most necessary to redescribe at this moment. Yeah, so this comes from the McLuhan idea I talked about earlier that the conceptual map we have of the world is just not accurate anymore. And so describing the territory as it is is a key first step to be able to take strategic actions based on reality. And this is kind of based in epistemic humility. The higher level conception of what people think philosophy or science is requires a stable understanding of the world. I was just reading another memoriam of Latour, and Latour, the French sociologist of science, also describes his project as description. Simply saying what the scientists are doing saying where the scientists are physically, saying how they spend their time and what the product of their endeavor is, an academic paper, as opposed to taking the philosophers of science, Karl Popper, saying science is falsifiability and deduction. If you're not doing that, you're not doing science, which is just completely ridiculous. So I think it is then helpful to start redescribing the things that people think they know about and so this is why, starting with liberalism and conservatism, reconsidering the motivations for each of these movements and how those appear in the current landscape is a big part of this. Let me also say that this is a big move for me in my normal science career. I founded an academic journal of quantitative description for digital media. The idea here is that I want academics in my area to spend a significant fraction of their time on the question of what is it? What is social media? What is being produced mm. and consumed on these different platforms? Who is consuming it when? And the fact is we don't spend enough on this basic first step. We ask the wrong questions. So there's a media panic, and then there's a bunch of New York Times op-eds, and then all the rich people fund grants to study misinformation and algorithmic radicalization, which are not unimportant topics, but they've essentially excluded everything else and I think we can't even tackle these topics accurately unless we have a good map of what social media is. So as someone who has an understanding of how to use statistics and is keenly aware of how social media has been changing, could you illustrate what 
kind of data you would ideally be quantifying? Like, what would be an example of a quantification that you would find useful? Right. So my, you know, my favorite example of what pushed me in this direction was I was super frustrated about this YouTube algorithm radicalization narrative that emerged. It's a big op-ed in 2018 that called YouTube's Great Radicalizer. And this becomes very concerning. It's like, oh, my kids are looking at the YouTube and now it's showing them white nationalists and that's because the algorithm is greedy. And uh, I think this critique is really problematic because it is the critique that these companies exactly want. So at the base of both the misinformation and the YouTube algorithm radicalization panic is the premise that these companies can brainwash people. Mm. And these companies are in the business of selling ads By taking these critical approaches, we have reified their business model. So, and then it also implies that sort of if, oh, if, uh, you know, Google was less greedy and the algorithm wasn't bad, then YouTube would be fine. It was also not the case. So what I did with my co-author, Joe Phillips, who's now a postdoc in the UK, he was a domain expert of YouTube. So he hand-coded a few hundred right-wing YouTube channels beginning with some great qualitative work by Becca Lewis, who's a grad student at Stanford, and snowballing out to get a big picture of what the main channels on the YouTube right were between about 2012 and 2018, 19. And all we do, we take the YouTube API, which, you know, if you can scrape APIs, it's fairly accessible. We download metadata from these channels. We say, how often did these channels produce videos? And how many views did these videos get? Using Joe's hand coding, we divided them up into a few different clusters. So we have the alt-right, the neo-Nazis, the alt-light. They've also been called anti-woke. People who are primarily trolling contemporary progressive social issues. And then mainstream conservatives, your Ben Shapiro's, etc. And we see that if you look at the production of videos on YouTube in 2014, 2015, if you are a person going on YouTube, 80% of the videos are made by anti-woke people or neo-Nazis. So in that era, if the algorithm had been a random die, you would have been very likely to be recommended white nationalists. So it limits the capacity of the algorithm to do anything. And then the second part of the story is that when the conservatives start to increase their production of videos around Trump's emergence and they realize the audience is there, they start making high production value videos that are actually closer to the ideological beliefs of the median audience member. And they take a lot of audience share from the farther right. So the main story here is that the demand for this right-wing content was already there. When people were able to consume mainstream right-wing content, they did. And nobody to the left of Ben Shapiro was really making YouTube videos until Destiny and the BreadTubers, and it's still dramatically underrepresented. That's why YouTube is a right-wing platform. To Julian's point, they they just used it. They just tried to use it and they won. Right. Mm. But that's interesting. We're actually having a scientific crisis when it comes to studying social media. I I always just say, I think there's a lot of people doing great qualitative research. You know, ethnography is great. But the reality of the hierarchy of social sciences is that quant stuff gets more money. They get more grad students. They get more faculty lines and they get more grants. So maybe you could uh, tell us a bit about Meta science as this framing approach for your journal. So meta science is a social movement that I think emerges out of a need for social scientists and scientists generally to reorient ourselves. A lot of this comes out of there are crises in science, a variety of of crises where people are sort of realizing things aren't really working. And this is pushing some people to think more broadly about the foundations of what 
we're doing. And for example, the questions I like to ask are, how would we know if we were doing well? Are we doing better than we were? You made an interesting analogy in one of your pieces between the progression of climate-related volatility and Mm. the progression of nonlinear media and how both are quite difficult to adapt to in part because there's no baseline anymore and maybe the scientific models are not as useful as they had been. So could you speak about that parallel? Because for me, it was super helpful in thinking about the media environment we're in and how we need to think about engaging it. I mean, this is why redescription of everything often is necessary because from the ecological perspective, which comes out of cybernetics, you don't just add something to everything else. The addition of something changes everything else. Mm. And so the idea of, let's say, static bases of knowledge is less useful than it once was. Also less useful, I think, is one of the traditional justifications for conservatism, which is that we have inherited institutions from our ancestors that let us solve problems that are important to humans. Because the conditions we live in today are so different from our ancestors, I think that epistemic justification for conservatism is less correct Mm. than it might have been in more settled times. So unfortunately, this just requires adaptability, openness, not getting stuck anywhere, continuing to read and think and expose yourself to new things. I guess the tension here is that that's not really what most humans want. Empirically, it seems like most of us want stability. Most of us want to get some stuff sorted and then be happy and go about what we want to do, live our lives, have kids, whatever, not have kids. The other thing is, I guess, to just pay more attention yeah, to art. <laughs> so McLuhan says that art is the uh, early warning signal. Uh, art's uh, also in a crisis, or art media is. So maybe there's amazing things being made, but how do we communicate it to a broader audience? But just one point, you also speak about this a bit. Yes, we need to be open and fluid and able to continuously adapt. That's a good quality. But the reason why most people want to have some stuff figured out and then not have to think about it again is because it takes up a lot of bandwidth and it's inefficient. I mean, one of the pros of mass media, and not to say we need to continue mass media, but that you had a group of people whose job it was to tell you the news. And they did that. Maybe they limited the narrative, but you didn't have to spend several hours a day cross-checking different sources to make sure you're not reading fake news. Or you were given knowledge from your doctor and you felt you could trust it. And I think there's a feeling of being overwhelmed by this continuous task of do your own research and continuously adapt. That in itself is a kind of societal crisis. Whereas we should have people that can devote all their time to thinking about whatever their pursuit is. Do you see any protocol or any individuals who are starting to alleviate some of that exhaustion? I think that this is another example where the right wing is ahead of the curve. One of the other strands of American philosophy is republicanism. So Thomas Jefferson is about this idea of the yeoman farmer. And what's really important for liberalism to function is republicanism. That is, we need to cultivate strong, powerful elites who can actually act well. Information synthesis at scale is not possible. All we can hope for is a good aristocracy. And so I see in the body purity move that has become more right-wing and in the bodybuilding and and all this, a sense of needing to cultivate strength. Mm. And I think this is another area, like learning to code, that we need to valorize in all sorts of capacities, not just lifting weights, but the ability to be resilient, 
obviously group resilience is the most effective, but in terms of the amount of slack that is available, the stronger the individual members of the group, the larger the group's shocks can absorb without breaking. And this is in tension with a lot of the contemporary politics in left vibe spaces, where it's all about making space for weakness. Mm -hmm. Weakness generated because of historical oppression, for sure. But I think that having stronger people in your political movement is better for your political movement. And that insofar as you've described these bandwidth problems and people's emotional exhaustion, their physical exhaustion, not having good food, not having good home life, does weaken their capacity for collective resilience and for political action. Totally. I mean, I guess it gets back to your framing idea where in order to be liberal in 2023, you have to embrace a certain degree of conservatism. I really think that 2023 is the actual beginning of the 20s as a decade. I mean, already we see social media being widely considered just a video game and a totally impoverished space for yeah. real deliberation or discourse, right? I think that's like this big organizing shift we've seen as we enter the next decade. I guess I have two questions here. One is, are we in a sort of crisis around language in terms of what almost seems like a perceptual or cognitive or even ontological confusion of how much language and words should be weighted next to material reality. And yeah. also, I mean, well, maybe we just start there, but I, I do want to ask you what you imagine is going to be left behind in the last decade and what conversations will be opened. What ideas will form the orientation as we move into the 20s? The first one, I think the problem of language today is inflation. The cost of producing words has gone down dramatically, and so we have too many words. And in a perfectly efficient information theoretic process, everyone should be aware that the price of producing words has gone down, and thus the informational content has been degraded because of the decrease in cost. Costly signals are necessary for communication, and if the two parties don't understand what the actual cost was, people can overestimate how much information they're receiving. And I think that is the key parameter around language. So that, I think, is the source of this linguistic inflation that sounds like you're describing. But what's the workaround? I mean, I guess smaller communities helps, but what is the solution to this? The cheap, short hack. I really like Patricia Lockwood's novel, mm. which is about Twitter. I mean, she's an online poet, really, the first great Twitter poet who's received mainstream acceptance. And her strategy is to use made-up words. If there's a made-up word, the machine couldn't have produced it. The amount of information in an anomaly is higher. So the amount of intentionality that went into figuring out some higher level game, and in the book she says the word binch instead of bitch, and she and her friends think it's hilarious because they have some background knowledge that allows them to understand that there was more intentionality put into the construction of this single word than a, you know, after an interview you use Google autocomplete to send an email that's perfectly business school accurate but has no information in it. I think this is a short-run hack because the machines are also able to adapt almost as quickly as we can innovate. So get off the clarinet, deprive the machines of training data, and 
impose more costs on sending signals. Yeah, I mean, that's why the word kafefe is one of the most important words that Trump uttered via Twitter because of its incoherence. You know, we talk often about incoherent images being more data rich than Mm -hmm. legible ones because they're legible only to certain groups in certain ways. I mean, it's also interesting, 4chan always had this like really, really intense in-group language. Right, calling people like not old heads, but old Yeah, I think we've seen in the tens language used in a way almost like the goal of being a human being on earth was to make reality match language. Mm. I guess my question is, do you think there needs to be a a new fuzziness around language or that basically- But also who's to say we're going to be using language? I mean, with GPT-3 and all this, who's to say that we're not going to be more image prime? Right. So this is great. I think this is the exact response to the information inflation idea, which is that in Twitter in particular, you know, taking McLuhan, the medium is the message and asking what is the medium of Twitter? It looks like it's just a bunch of very short strings of text, but in fact- Twitter is mostly relational information. Who follows who? The density of feedback and networks compared to content on Twitter is extremely high. So I think that what Twitter did, hopefully did and not does, is act as a kind of vibe engineering machine where small communities would try to lay on and just continue to send vibes to particular signifiers in the form of words, what images you have, or in the form of specific accounts, people. And so the politics that Twitter produces is vibe warfare. The point is to try to give as much negative association to the things you don't like, which just means sending lots of signals and, and doing so in a way that increases the density of the network of signals. So if you can tie the bad thing into white nationalists, then you've succeeded in the most effective form of vibe engineering. And this, I think, is what produced the density of accreted information that you're describing, Julian. This makes me think about your discourse around cruelty and Twitter. And it's interesting to me that there's this discourse around care. And so often it's paired with this kind of Twitter cruelty, this take each other down, be as violent as you can be with language to one another. Can you speak a little bit about this pairing of care and cruelty in the Twitter sphere? Right. Well, I think the cruelty is by design. It's built into the infrastructure of the platform. It's actually difficult to send a message that contains a lot of dense goodness. Like, Upworthy does this with the cat pictures, but that's <laughs> kind of gets old and it keeps very old people entertained, but like, it's not actually got enough juice. That's because goodness involves dedication. It involves actual relationships with people. It can't be fully encoded in a tweet. But evil, you can point out harms that are being done. That's what Twitter allows you to do. And I think it's helpful at this point. Enough time has passed to talk about cancel culture, which is real in the sense that like the majority of my undergrad students use the word cancel as if it's a normal word. It's just part of the culture. <laughs> cancel culture is culture. It was enabled by social media. It is as baseline to their experience of these platforms as anything could be. The reason why the discourse around this term was so politicized is because it focused on the targets. So they took the phenomenon of cancel culture, online mobs and the competition to be the cruelest that you possibly can in order to get the most likes. They took that and they focused on the targets. And the redescription in action, I want to say, let's look at what this does to the cancelers. 
to not see these other people as human, mm-hmm. but to participate in a cruelty competition to see who can be the most effective at inflicting psychic torment on another human. And that just seems bad to me. I mean, I guess that makes me a conservative. It is true. It does feel like all of the rhetoric around inclusion and care, there are some instances where I'm sure it did actual good. But by and large, it feels like it was catharsis. I mean, we've seen the good that's come out of the activism of the past five years or so. Mm -hmm. But of course, it also opens up exploits. Right. That end up manifesting in really toxic ways. And the fact that these words are imbued with some kind of sacred shield that like protects them, that like executes a script of protect absolutely among other people in social media. Anytime there's a source of power available, it's going to be exploited. Mm -hmm. Right. But I just wonder, I mean, I still haven't broken my caps lock streak on Twitter (laughs) since 2008 or something. And the reason I did it is because it's like a form of disrespect to the platform itself and the discourse and deliberation that happens on it, right? Hopefully corporations and everyone else stops weighting this as the public commons, as a real legitimate venue. I mean, I do think a lot of the corporate responsibility we've seen was actually a side effect of just the ZERP era of mm. zero interest rate. That the companies had uh, enough money to afford to, to do, these, or uh, do these, these things that virtue signal. Uh, now they're shutting it all. <laughs> right. And I think that's probably going to disappear now that the money's dried up. I mean, I think it was also, though, a very good disruption. I mean, a friend of mine who works in commercial real estate, who's a white guy who was in a fraternity, says it couldn't have happened fast enough because of the nepotism ingrained in the company was actually bad for the company. Mm -hmm. Like the diversity initiatives actually brought in real competition, actual talent finally, because they couldn't just hire so-and-so's buddy from the country club or Mm -hmm. so-and-so's, you know, cousin. But at the same time, the question of course is what happens now. Um, And maybe I want to try a exercise with you. I was looking into, I don't know, stable diffusion and text to image generation. And some of the models they use what's called negative prompts, where to get the thing you want, you describe what you don't want Mm. to better refine Hmm. the thing that you actually want to get. And I'm wondering if you could give a uh, prompt of the opposite of your organizing framework. I mean, I'm thinking about how you talk about technological determinism. And I wonder if, yeah, maybe you can give us a negative prompt of the organizing baseline you're opposed to or that you're planning to move away from in the coming decade. Yeah. The term that comes to mind is still modernism. I think that the institutions that we created to adapt to, let's say, 1870s onward are still around to an extremely large extent. And we can't even think about what the world is like without them. Mm -hmm. Moving past that is, in every way, a big part of it. I guess also maybe to clarify about technological determinism, and just so I'm clear on it, why is technological determinism so controversial as a framework? So technological determinism is extremely unpopular. I have gotten yelled at by my colleagues for talking about it. It has been disproven. And to some extent, this is right. And as I was saying, no individual lens is correct. So, of course, technology does not determine everything else, nor does any one other thing determine everything else. But I think it is helpful, given the scope of how much media technology has changed, to think about it on its own terms. 
I see the emphasis on technological determinism as a response to the overproduction of culture critique and mm. the fact that all of these intellectuals love to do critical theory where they, the smart intellectual, are able to reveal the critical reality in a Marxist framework. So I think you can still do that, y'all. Mm. You can still do it. You have to take media more seriously. That's what I'm doing. It's fun. I think McLuhan is a generator of ideas, not a tester of ideas. Mm. He's not a scientist. Oh, mm -hmm. You could just say you're like a fuzzy technological determinist. <laughs> yeah. It depoliticizes, people think, and they want to mm. politicize everything. Whereas I think technology is politics, and I think that's why... It totally is. It's like political code that then we have no choice but to follow. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, because we should probably wrap up yeah. soon. What has been for you one or two of the most helpful resources in thinking through the topics we've been discussing in the past hour? Cybernetics, including Norbert Wiener, Cybernetics, Human Use of Human Beings, Stafford Beer, Designing Freedom immediate ecologists like McLuhan, Neil Postman. And then I got to plug this guy who I'm currently obsessed with and I think everyone should read. This guy, Willem Flusser. <laughs> I, I, mean, I literally have been reading, he's just going through all of his books over the past month. Won't argue with I you there. I think there's a lot of insights to mine, so I would definitely, he's fun to read too. What's your, what's on the top of your Why Flusser did you list? laugh? You know this guy, Carly? Yeah, what's Flusser, the, yeah, of course. What's the deal? A note on Willem Flusser. Willem Flusser was a philosopher and scholar of communications theory who published work in Czech, German, French, Portuguese, and English. He learned these languages out of necessity, having been born in Prague in 1920 to a Jewish family of scientists, then fleeing to London before settling in Sao Paulo as the Nazis came to power, losing all of his close relatives as a young man to the German concentration camps. He would depart Brazil, however, following the onset of the 1964 military dictatorship, which dramatically curtailed intellectual experimentation. He relocated to Europe, ultimately taking up residence with his wife in the south of France, where he could freely lean into the postmodern exploration of communications theory that his time in Brazil had inspired. At the time, very little of his writing had been published in English, but somehow the young New York-based Ingrid Sishi intersected it, perhaps due to the highly creative paths out of rigid Greenbergian modernism it provided. As editor-in-chief of the newly glossy and zeitgeisty art forum magazine, she invited Flusser to pen a regular column. And from 1986 until his untimely death in 1991 in a car crash near the Czech-German border, Flusser published a few pieces a year in art forum, all running under the series title Curie's Children, as in Marie Curie. While his writing rarely addressed artworks directly, it provided the media theoretical context through which art by the likes of Barbara Kruger, Richard Prince, Ashley Bickerton, and Andy Warhol could be understood. Reading through the 20-some pieces in Artform's archive, I'm struck by how brilliantly his analogies track with the concerns of our own 2020s culture sector. This is especially true when thinking about human and machinic intelligences and the encoding of information and language, whether text-based or image-based or numerical, and the bridging of these various notational regimes. So we thought we'd give you here a teaser of some Flusser from his art forum column. The following is an abridged passage from his October 1990 installment of Curie's Children. It's titled Popes. Art criticism, as an attempt to translate from images into the words of a language, has to do with the building of bridges. 
In ancient Rome, bridge builders were called pontifices, and the head builder, Pontifex Maximus, still lives in that city, which is to say that art critics and the Pope are in the same business. Bridge building in general is an address of the problem of transportation over the abyss. An art critic is a pontiff who tries to build a bridge between where he or she stands, namely in words, and the universe of images. The bridge is made of words, but of words that advance into the meaninglessness of an abyss. In this sense, every code is imperialistic. Those who stand within believe their code is universal, that everything may be said in English, say, or in music, or in numbers. This, in fact, is the meaning of faith. If you stand within the code of words, you believe that the word was in the beginning, that it became flesh, that it is creative, logos spermatikos, that it is the dwelling of being. And if you stand in the code of numbers, you believe with Pythagoras and Plato, that it is numbers that are real and that through them, you may achieve wisdom. The same goes for pictures, but there is this moment of translation when you come up against the limits of the universe you believe in. People like the Pope and like Ludwig Wittgenstein stand there, and art critics do too, although some of them may not always realize it. We were told in high school to translate both as faithfully as possible and as freely as necessary. This is a curious recipe for pontification because it opposes faith to freedom. If I want to truly translate, I must give up faith and dare freedom. This is the business of bridge building in general, and especially of art criticism because it is not the word that is sacred, but the silent abyss. It is this sacred, meaningless, absurd abyss to which pontiffs and art critics attempt to give meaning. And now that artificial intelligences seem to do precisely that, but ultimately cannot, pontiffs are needed more than ever. That's gold. It's really gold. I love that you dropped Flusser in one of your texts too. And I was like, yes, that's great. Yeah. Okay, great. Glad I'm, I'm glad to see it. Anyway, yeah. let's, take, let's, let's make him take off. And is there anyone contemporary that you think is asking some interesting questions? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different intellectual clusters that all have good things to add. The cybernetic socialists, Cosmo Shalizi is a CS professor at CMU who's just written a bunch of weird stuff over the decades on a blog. Uh, Henry Farrell who is my co-blogger at Crooked Timber. Basically, this is a list of people who I think understand the internet, and that I think is the most important compliment I can give a thinker. Yeah. <laughs> and then there are some more kind of Catholic conservative types, which I think is an interesting tradition. You know, McLuhan, a devout Catholic, and that informed his whole approach. This tradition of centering the body is a big part of Catholicism, and I think gives them a scriptural basis from which to observe new media without being taken in by it. Anyway, Michael Sakasas, who blogs, he's been on Ezra Klein's podcast. Ezra Klein is the most popular person who is in this world. I mean, he's not fully of it. Sean Illing, who does the podcast at Vox, is quite good. He recently had a book about the paradox of democracy, which I think is helpful on this. So, yeah. That's great. Kevin, this is really helpful. Thank you for talking us through your current thinking. Is any of this leading to a future publication or is there anything on the horizon that we should be uh, looking out for? Yes. So in my normal science uh, career, I'm writing a book on supply and demand theory of social media, Amazing. which is let's look at what these platforms are in terms of what people produce, what people consume and why. The more philosophical stuff is leading to another book trying to integrate these disparate strands that have captured my attention, cybernetics, 
American pragmatism, computational social science, and experiments as a way to think about what democracy looks like in the 21st century. Well, I hope these books are published soon and widely distributed. Very kind. Always a pleasure to, to chat Mc, with you. McLuhan, Flusser, Munger. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> I, I see it. I really have faith in academia if Kevin is representative of the new minds that are going to be populating it. Yes. So. All right. Well, thanks, Kevin. We'll see you on the Discord, I hope. And, yeah, so we'll uh, have to have you check in like yearly or something. Know, for right? sure, at least. We'll see how things progress. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Ciao. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to New Models and thank you, Kevin Munger, for joining us again. We hope there will be more conversations with Kevin in the future. Be sure to keep up with all of his activity and check out his book, Generation Gap, from Columbia University Press. You'll find links in the show notes. Our screening with Trust in Berlin is confirmed for February 8th. Details are forthcoming. We scheduled it to follow CTM and Transmediala. If you're in town visiting for either, keep in touch. We'll be at the Amnesia Scanner and Team Rolf's show on Saturday, February 4th. Transmediala this year focuses on scale, with the title A Model, A Map, A Fiction. And their 2023 Marshall McLuhan lecture is with Svetlana Matvienko, who joined us last May in an episode titled Atomic User. Glad to see they've been tuning in. Hope to catch you on the 8th or before IRL, and of course, always in the Discord. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.